0: As our children are making their way and being escorted <laughs> in that, let me say uh, good morning to you again. Uh, thank you for response. Uh, my name is Irwin and I am one of the pastors here at Grace Mosaic, and in my role as a pastor here, I actually serve our entire network uh, of congregations, uh, downtown Meridian Hill and and here at Mosaic. And this morning, uh, I get to uh, start a short series with you. It really is a bit of a continuation uh, from where pa- we have been with, with Pastor Russ for most of this year, focusing on the kingdom of God. My focus for us over these next few weeks that I have the opportunity to, uh, to proclaim God's word from the, uh, the book of Acts is... Uh, just a continuation uh, of that and this focus on uh, the kingdom of God. I want to talk to you this morning before we read our scripture. Uh, the message this morning is titled, uh, Extreme Makeover, uh, Spirit Edition. Extreme Makeover, Spirit Edition. And the point of this message this morning is simply this that God has sent the Holy Spirit to empower His church for kingdom mission. God has sent the Holy Spirit to empower His church for kingdom mission. Would you look with me at the first 11 verses of the first chapter of the book of Acts? Acts chapter 1 and verses 1 through 11. It will be on the screen in front of you or... You can have it on your, uh, on your device, in your hand, or your Bible. Let's hear God's Word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs to heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you pray with me. Father, we bless your name this morning. We bow before your throne of grace with thankful hearts for this, your word that is not dead, but that is living and active, that is sharper than any double-edged sword that pierces to the division of of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And our our confession this morning, Lord, is that every heart in here is naked and exposed to you, the one to whom we must all give account. And so, Lord, we know that means that you know precisely what we stand in need of this morning. And so would you be pleased to take My weak and unworthy efforts in this your word, and come and meet us where we are and give us what we need. Lord, if we need faith, would you, in your mercy, give us the gift of faith this morning? Lord, if we need to be encouraged, would you bless us to be encouraged by the proclamation of your word this morning? Oh Father if we need correction would you correct us if we need conviction would you convict us lord do this and more for us that we would be people who live not for our own praise but for the one who for the praise of the one who lived and who died and who rose and who ascended into the right hand of the throne of majesty our great high priest Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen, Amen, and Amen. We think are most of us all too familiar with the fact that rebuilding projects are are common on large scale and on small scale. I remember back in the 90s during the the Clinton administration, they came up with this idea. We were still living in New York at the time. And they came up with this, these things they called empowerment zones. There were these parts, particularly in New York City and Harlem and neighborhoods of, of Brooklyn that uh, were designated uh, through this project as empowerment zones. The idea was to encourage businesses to, to open and to expand and hire a local residents in these distressed neighborhoods to help renew and revitalize them and, and make them attractive places to live and, and to work. Uh, these, these neighborhoods were in need of a makeover. And in some of those cases, actually, the, sometimes the makeover meant displacement. Now, some of us in here have, have taken on our own makeover projects in our homes. You may have bought a house knowing that it needed some work. There, there were projects that had to be completed for the house to be just the way you wanted it to be. In fact, it doesn't matter if you live in a house or a a condo or an apartment or whatever the case may be, you can quickly think about things you'd like to do to make your house better. So whether it's a large-scale government project or your own personal restoration plan, we all get the fact that stuff falls apart. And when it does, restoration is necessary and a plan has to be put in place. We accept it as a fact of life that things uh, fall apart and, and, and are given to decay and become in need of repair. And, and even though we know this is true, we don't necessarily like it. We wish that things... <laughs> including us, didn't fall apart into disrepair. Dennis Johnson, in his book, The Messes of Acts, puts it this way. I think he puts it well when he says, he says, still, it bothers us that things fall apart. We buy a new house The drains back up, we buy a new car, it's scratched in the parking lot, or the dashboard clock loses time. Clean air and water get polluted. It's easier to foul up a coastline with crude oil than it is to clean it up. We ourselves fall apart. Sickness, fatigue, stress, and depression take their toll. Sometimes, he says, with a heavy investment of dollars, expertise, and energy, malignancies and infections can be turned back and decaying organs can be repaired or replaced, but it's always an uphill battle. Years ago, some of you may remember that show on TV titled Extreme Makeover, Home Edition. The storyline in that show was always centered around an individual or a family with a, with a dilapidated house, a house that was in disrepair, who also did not have the means to restore or rebuild it. Uh, the repair, rebuild, and restoration crew would, would come in and they would make the house over entirely in just a week's time. And it was always also the case that the people who received the new house had been in need of this makeover for a long time. They'd been fighting this uphill battle for a long, long time. Well, with the Sermon title like Extreme Makeover, Spirit Edition, you can probably figure out where I'm going. Things have fallen apart in God's world. Uh, things have been falling apart in God's world for a long time. When we look at the world, it's almost, almost often like one of those never-ending constructing projects. You know, those highways in some cities that you're on, some streets, every time you drive down for years, you're like, this thing is always under construction. When are they going to get finished with this road? Seems like that is the case in this world. But one of the things that the Bible shows us is that God has his own extreme makeover plan. And even though it can seem like a never-ending uphill battle, the kingdom of God has broken in on this world and it is overcoming it. God's extreme makeover plan is taking place by the work of his Spirit in the lives of his people. That is the theme that runs through this entire book of Acts. We're describing it in these few weeks as the Spirit of God at work in the world through the church. And as we work through these verses this morning in Acts chapter 1 under the title Extreme Makeover Spirit Edition, we will see the writer Luke beginning to introduce this theme for us that God has sent the Holy Spirit to empower His church for kingdom mission. And as we talk about God making over the world, really there are two main things I want to get across to us that God is making over the world by his Spirit, and God is making over the world by his church. And look, to say that God is making over the world is a really big claim. At some level, it seems absolutely ridiculous and silly to say, given everything that we know and experience every day. But Luke, he was not delusional when he, and he wasn't kidding about what he writes in this book. Acts, the book of Acts, is the second volume that he wrote about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. His first volume, of course, is the gospel of Luke. And he says to the same person, to Theophilus, uh, at the beginning of the gospel of Luke, in verses 1 and 2 of his gospel, he says, uh, uh, rather in verses 1 and 2 of this book, Acts, he says, In the first book, I wrote about all the things, O Theophilus, which Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he gave commands to the apostles through the Holy Spirit, those whom he had chosen. And notice a couple of things in the introduction to the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter one, verses three and four. Luke says to Theophilus, it says, he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So first, uh, Luke's reasoning hasn't changed when he starts to write Acts. He wrote his gospel to give certainty about who Jesus is and what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And what is obvious is the, that the life of following Jesus is not a life that is free of doubt. We need certainty. He still wants Theophilus and us to have certainty. Luke knows that certainty comes from the from the Spirit of God confirming in our hearts the truth of God's Word. Did you catch what he said in verse 2 of our text that Jesus gave commands, he gave instructions to the apostles through the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus instructing his apostles. Listen, This is Jesus instructing his apostles after his resurrection. And before he was taken up, before his ascension to the throne of God. This is the in-between time that, that, that Luke is writing about. And Luke says that the resurrected Jesus gave commands to the apostles through the Holy Spirit. Jesus says to the apostles in verses 4 and 5 of our text, Do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father which you heard from from me. For for John baptized with water, but you all will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not long after these days. Uh, next week, as Pastor Joel said, is Pentecost Sunday and we will be looking at uh, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter chapter 2, but Luke is saying to us in verse 2 of this text that the Holy Spirit was active before Pentecost. The, the commands... That Jesus gave the apostles after his resurrection that came out of his mouth were given through the Holy Spirit. Well, what's the point? The point is, listen, that if those commands were going to be received and believed, it had to happen by means of the Holy Spirit. You will never receive, you will never believe the words of Jesus without the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen, in the second thing, I want to point out that this it, it follows naturally. He's not just writing so that we can have certainty about what Jesus did and taught, but what but but have certainty about what Jesus continues to do and teach. Luke says he wrote about all the things Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, until the day he ascended. That is, uh, uh, his, 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 till the day he ascended to his, his rightful seat at the right hand of God the Father. The implication is that this is a book about what Jesus continued to do and teach in the world after his ascension. In other words... His ascending to the throne of God was not the end of his activity. In other words, Jesus is still at work. He's still at work here and now and today. This book is titled Acts for a reason. It's historically called Acts of the Apostles, but, but, but listen, I got a longer title for the book. I would, I would call it the Acts of the Apostles, or rather, I'd rather let me, let me back up. I would call it the ongoing work of, and words of Jesus by his Spirit through the Apostles and the church. Did you get that? That's a too long plan. The ongoing activity of the words and works of Jesus by the, yeah, that's a little too long. Act, acts is good, huh? All right, let's stick with Acts. Let's stick with Acts. Listen, here's the deal, though. Acts helps us to see how Jesus' work continued back then and still continues today. Understand, to make this claim that God is overcoming the world, you have to know and believe that Jesus is still at work. That he's still at work exercising his presence and his authority in spite of his physical absence. This exercise of his presence and authority, everything Jesus began to do and teach was focused on the kingdom of God. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says to his apostles, he says, You are those who stayed with me in my trials. And he says, And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. The apostles are now engaged in kingdom mission from beginning to end. Every detail of Acts is about the message of the kingdom of God. It is about the kingdom of God breaking into and overcoming the world. Uh, did what Luke says in verse three of our passage? Did it? Uh, did it hit you? Do you? Do you recognize the impact? He says that Jesus presented himself. Alive to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself to them after his suffering by many proofs. His death on the cross wasn't the end, and his apostles knew that they knew this as an undeniable fact. They were eyewitnesses of his resurrection, but there's this thing tucked in at the end of the sentence. He appeared to them over 40 days, and what did he talk with them about over the course of those 40 days? It says over 40 days, Luke says, he appeared to them and spoke to them about matters concerning the kingdom of God. His subject matter was the kingdom of God. In those 40 days that he spent, that the resurrected Christ spent with the apostles, Jesus had a one-track mind. The most important thing for them had to be the kingdom of God. Well, what in the world is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? And what's so important about it to consume 40 days of straight teaching? I know we just got through with that sermon series, so I know y'all got it all wrapped up and buttoned up, kingdom of God. But this is for those who weren't here for the sermon series. I love this definition of the kingdom of God that I got from uh, while I was in seminary reading an old uh, Dutch uh, theologian, Gerhardus Voss. And it, when, when he was studying the gospels, uh, Voss was, was focused on what the kingdom of God means to Jesus. And he, and he writes this, he says, To Jesus, the kingdom exists not merely where God is supreme. <laughs> for that is always and everywhere true. The kingdom of God is not simply where God has supremacy because you can't go nowhere or be at no time where that's not true. But to Jesus, the kingdom of God is where God supernaturally carries through his supremacy against opposite and opposing forces and powers and brings people to the willing recognition of this. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. He is talking about where God carries through his supremacy against the forces that oppose it. And he brings people like you and me to the willing recognition that he's Lord and God is supreme. Jesus is telling his apostles that the father's extreme makeover plan is in effect. There's going to be some supernatural carrying through of God's supremacy against all those opposes, those forces that oppose it, and they're going to see people. they're going to see that people have no choice but to recognize it. And the apostles have to get that singular message ingrained into their heads, in their hearts, because those forces opposing God's supremacy are very real. And can I tell you, it's not just the apostles who are with Jesus over those 40 days that have to get this into the, their hearts, get this singular message about the kingdom of God into, into their hearts, because listen, the forces that oppose God's supremacy are still very real. So Watch this, Jesus, uh, Luke begins this book with Jesus instructing, his apostles on the kingdom of God. Let's take a peek at the end of the book and see what it's talking about. If you turn to the very end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28 and the verses, uh, uh, verses 30 and 31, in that scene, the apostle Paul is, is, is under house arrest in Rome. And the very last message in the book of Acts is this, It says about Paul that he lived there in Rome under house arrest two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The kingdom of God speaks to God's claim on the entire creation and his purpose to rescue and repair and restore it. And so what do we find Paul doing at the end of the book? He is, in, he is imprisoned under house arrest. And what is he doing? He's talking about the kingdom of God. And the message is, even if those who carry that message are bound and detained and hindered, the message itself cannot be hindered because God's makeover plan is in full effect. God is making over the world by his Spirit. And we see that in these verses that, 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 that help us to, to work this out in conjunction with the instruction about the kingdom Jesus gives them in order. And this order, it informs them uh, that, that this kingdom work will happen because of his presence with them in the person of the Holy Spirit. Says Jesus says, says Jesus commanded them, Don't depart from Jerusalem, wait. Wait for the pro- Father's promise that you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but... But you, you all will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not too long from now. At the end of of Luke's gospel, Jesus is with the disciples after his resurrection. And he introduces this promise to them in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 to 49. Luke says that Jesus said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day uh, rise from the dead and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be uh, proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, he said. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Here at the beginning of Acts, Jesus issues the same orders. Let's back up a bit if you don't mind. Even if you do mind, we're still going to do it. When John the Baptist came on the scene, preaching to Israel and all around the region of the Jordan River, he proclaimed to them a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And when, he, when they asked John if he was the Christ, if he was the Messiah, Luke says in chapter 3 and verse 16 of his gospel that John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of his sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Let's go back a little further. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 32, verse 15, the prophet, he looks forward to a day when the Spirit of God is poured out on us from on high and the wilderness, he says, becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. The prophet Joel, he looks forward to a day in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, when the Lord will pour out his Spirit on all flesh, even, he says, on, on male and female servants. When we are talking about the kingdom of God, we're talking about God's promise of a new creation, his promise to rescue and to restore, to renew and to rebuild. And it has always been the case that central to his makeover promise and plan is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God's reconstruction plan through his spirit is all throughout the scriptures. What Jesus says in Acts, and and the fulfillment of his words is what enables the Apostle Paul even to instruct Titus in the book of Titus chapter 3 to remind the the Christians in Crete. He says, Paul says, when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us rich through Jesus Christ our Savior so Jesus tells them to wait to stop going in and out of Jerusalem to wait there for the promised coming of the Holy Spirit the kingdom work that they were being commissioned to do could not be done in the strength of their own flesh it's the Spirit's work and so what happened? Like 10 days after Jesus spoke these words, the Spirit was poured out. What Jesus said what happened, did happen. And so listen, we shouldn't be confused. We're not looking for some fresh outpouring of the Spirit like what happened at Pentecost. Yes, even today we are looking to be led by the Spirit of God. If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, but Paul could tell Christians that God has lavishly poured out the Holy Spirit upon us already. In Ephesians 1.19, he prays that the Christians in Ephesus would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards those who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. He's praying that that believers in Jesus know that the same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead was at work in them. The power of God who raised Jesus from the dead is a person, the Holy Spirit. So we don't spend time necessarily praying to God for a a, a fresh outpouring, praying to receive the, the baptism of the Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit's already been poured out and you've already been baptized. But what we do need to be reminded of What we do need to be reminded of is that God's makeover plan through the spirit is for the whole world. I used to love the cartoon Pinky and the Brain. Y'all remember that cartoon? Right? These genetically engineered and enhanced lab mice who were live in a cage at Acme Labs. Right? They they live in the cage, but every every episode, Pinky would say, gee, brain. What do you want to do tonight? And Brain would say the same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. In other words, Brain was saying, Pinky, you're thinking too small. He, Pinky, we live in a cage, and you think like somebody who lives in a cage. Brain always had to expand his vision and his thinking. Now, of course, brain's plans were for an evil domination and takeover of the world, so it's not a perfect analogy. But the apostles' response to Jesus in verse 6 showed that even after 40 days of dialogue and instruction on the kingdom of God, they were still thinking like people who lived in a cage. And Jesus had to expand their thinking. They come together and they ask Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? All this talk of restoration and the promise that the Spirit is going to come and make it happen has them enthused. But they they were thinking that this thing is about Israel getting back to the top. This kingdom of God thing in their minds is about God being for Israel. It's about our rising to the top of the world again as a people, both politically and militarily. We're going to be large and in charge. Quote from Johnson again in that same book, he says, the disciples' ethnocentric focus on Israel's military political ascendancy was far too small. In order to con- coincide with the Father's plan, their mental picture of the Messiah's kingdom would have to be magnified far beyond the boundaries of their imagination. They needed to see the expanding horizons of the Lord's work of rescue, repair, and restoration, embracing not only Israelites, but all peoples in a triumphant conquest of grace. Listen, please. If the apostles... Who were there with Jesus, talking and eating and having fellowship with the resurrected Lord for 40 days, still had a kingdom focus that was too small. Is it any wonder why you and I struggle with the same thing? Why is it that we often find that that we, the church, have this unhealthy mixture as if the goals of the kingdom and the goals of America were the same thing? Why is it often the, the case that the church acts as if the most pressing spiritual problems have political solutions? Why? It's because our focus is too small. Yes. God's kingdom advances into every sphere of life. So Christians must be kingdom-minded people when it comes to how we think about politics and how we exercise our civil rights. We should be kingdom-minded people when it comes to how we engage with everything, politics and art and athletics and academics and recreation, whatever it is. Because God's kingdom is not simply simply Spiritual in an immaterial sort of way, but it is material and physical as well. God's rule is not just over souls or spirits, but over people, places, time, and history. But listen Christians can function with the same era. They equated the kingdom with Israel. We can make the mistake of equating God's kingdom with the church. And here's what I mean we can labor and live as if God's kingdom goal is for the Christians to be on top we can labor and live as if the goal of God's kingdom is for the Christians to to have all the say in making the rules and laws about a just society As as if that is the goal no The goal is for Jesus to be on top and to make that known to the world. God is indeed, even with all of that, God is still making over the world by his church. Jesus backs them off of worrying about being on top. rejects their speculation about times and seasons. It's not for you to know, he says, times or seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. That doesn't belong to you. Jesus doesn't reject their concept of restoration necessarily. He rejects their right to know when the kingdom is going to come in its full measure. So in a sense, he he depoliticizes them how do you be how do you be concerned about politics as a depoliticized person that's kingdom work he depoliticizes them he replaces their political aspirations with his call, the kingdom mission, and he does so because what we find in verse 8 is the kingdom mission that God's making over the world through his spirit by his church. To know times or seasons, Jesus says, does not belong to you. Those times and seasons the father has set by his own authority, he says, but you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the end of the earth. Jesus says to him, You will receive power. You will have power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What will you receive power for? And you read through the book of Acts, you come across a lot of wonderful and mighty works of God. People are going to be speaking in different tongues. The church in Jerusalem is going to grow by 3,000 in one day. The lame and the sick are going to be healed. Immediate judgment and death are going to come on this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, when they lie to the Holy Spirit. Stephen is going to have a vision of Jesus in glory. Philip is going to be carried away by the Holy Spirit like a tractor beam in Star Trek from the Ethiopian eunuch in the desert to Azotus. Peter is going to raise Dorcas from the dead. Paul is going to raise Eutychus from the dead. Chains are going to fall off. Prison doors are going to miraculously unlock. Paul will survive a poisonous snake bite and on and on it goes. Folk read these things and they think that these are the things that should be normative for the church if you have power. That these are the things that if the Holy Spirit is working and that power is in effect, you should be seeing today all day every day. That the Holy Spirit empowered the church for the purpose of all these miraculous things. And look, God is able to do the miraculous whenever and wherever and however he pleases. But the corrective for that thinking is at the beginning of this book, out of Jesus' own mouth, the purpose of their receiving power when the Holy Spirit came was to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. The purpose of the power was for worldwide kingdom mission. The purpose of the power is to know that Jesus didn't just send out the church out on our own and say, okay, guys, you now seen the fulfillment of the promise, I'm alive, uh, that should be enough for you, now go forth with that knowledge. A few years ago, I read a blog post by a pastor named Mark Roberts titled The Mission of God in the Missional Church. In his article, he, he describes the the IMF, the impossible, the impossible mission force, you know that, at the center of those Mission Impossible movies. If you watch those movies, Mission Impossible, or the TV shows, you, you know that the IMF, the impossible mission force, always gets the job done through human ingenuity and technological know-how. And Pastor Roberts writes, after describing that, he says, as human beings, we also face an impossible mission but one that is truly beyond our potential. The problem, human sin and its results. The mission, to undo the dire effects of sin, to bring reconciliation between us and God, and to extend that reconciliation to all creation. He says in the quotable phrase of N.T. Wright, it's the mission of putting the world back to rights. The mission's degree of difficulty, he asks, utterly impossible. No amount of human cleverness, no collection of spiritual gizmos and disguises will mend the breach between us and God and heal all that is wrong with the world. He's so right. The kingdom mission that Jesus gives to his apostles and that comes down through them to his church as those who follow their apostolic teaching, is to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, to bear witness that he is the only God and Savior, that he is putting the world back to rights, bringing it under his divine glory and authority, that kingdom mission would be utterly impossible had not the Spirit been given to empower us for it. Our challenge, one of our challenges at least is, to be continually moving away from a contentment with simply knowing that Jesus is still with us in the person of the Holy Spirit, but living out of that knowledge so that what we know to be true has an impact on everything that we think and everything that we do. Like those neighborhoods that were, that were uh, labeled empowerment zones by the government 20 so years ago were giving resources for their empowerment because things had fallen apart. Jesus has made his church an empowerment zone by sending his spirit. And the power and the presence of the spirit is for the work of kingdom mission in every sphere of life God's making over the world. And he's using his church empowered by his spirit to do it. When Jesus comes, when he returns, like those, those two angels said, those two men said, the, the same Jesus you saw go away, he's coming back. And when he does to, to finally uh, consummate the kingdom, the makeover will be complete and there's not one aspect of this creation that will not experience create re, cre, uh, complete renewal. This renewal, listen, is still taking place. We are not waiting to be on this mission of renewal. Just like we don't wait to heaven to say we're going to stop sinning or we're going to work on our sinful stuff, we don't wait till the full coming of the kingdom to say we're not going to be on kingdom renewal mission with God. Listen, can I tell you something? That's, that's why we bless our children every Sunday before sinning the because God's making over the world. That's why we lay our hands on them. That's why, that's why we come to this table every week. Because God is making over the world. Because God has empowered his church for this mission. And don't get it twisted. Look, I know it looks like the world is always under construction and it's never gonna happen. But don't forget when I pointed out to you at the end of this book of Acts. Paul is in prison. He is under house arrest. He is not free, but the kingdom message is not hindered. So look, the renewal and the restoration and the remaking that God is doing might not necessarily look like you think it should look. It can be happening even when his apostle is in prison. It can be happening even with his, when his people are undergoing uh, suffering and persecution and hardship and sickness, even when it seems like the world has turned upside down. Have your eyes been open? Have you heard the instructions, the commands, the words of Jesus through the Holy Spirit? that Jesus is about his kingdom work of remaking the world. And as, as jacked up as you and I are, incredibly, if you belong to him, he delights to use us to do it. In your life at work, in your life at school, in your life in the church, the spirit is present and powerfully at work moving us out to be faithful witnesses that there is one King, one Lord, one Sovereign, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you are at work in this world through people who are messed up in us. Praise you for that, Lord, and ask that you would bless us to know day in and day out, to be a repentant people, a confessing people, a people who strive uh, to be faithful witnesses to you that you delight to use to show the world that you are God and Lord and King. Amen? Amen. 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 Well, we do, uh, can you just take a few moments for some Q&A afterwards? I don't assume, I uh, too but I, you know, God's <laughs> wonder what we The word is, is, the is.